Data-Driven Magic. We are a podcast about Magic the Gathering and deriving value from data. I'm your host, Rusty Sosha, and with me this week is Mac Wickensburg. I think I said your name right, right, Matt? Yeah, uh, kind of. Uh, you know, no one gets my, my, last na- my last name right ever. It's actually Wickensburg, um, Wickensburg, Wackensburg, whatever. I usually go by Wiki. That's the nickname. Wiki. Matt Wiki. All right. Excellent. Well, Matt, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Rusty, on the inaugural first show of Data Driven Magic. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Matt, in your opinion, why why are we doing this? What is what is the show about to you? In my opinion, this is all about how you can get a competitive edge playing the game of Magic the Gathering with the, the boon of data that we all have at our disposal. Right now, we have tons of data. It's actually been an explosion of data over the last couple of years. I don't think the magic community is taking a really good effect of that data. Yeah, absolutely. The reason that I reached out to you about doing this whole podcast was because there's so many people generating content about magic and it's really excellent, but I haven't seen any people really dive into a statistical analysis or or finding a good way to harness data. And I know that you are an enormous data junkie, if you don't mind, maybe maybe a derogatory term. But uh, yeah, so I love doing everything that I can to, to get better at whatever I'm doing. And I think you, you kind of fall into the same camp as, as me with regards to that. So, so that's why we're here. We've got a tool that we can use and we're going to try to figure out how to do it. Heck yeah. You know, I was thinking the other day, Rusty, you know, we're getting ready for our inaugural data-driven magic. So I'm going to throw a curveball at you as well. I think we need a tagline. Have you thought about yeah. taglines? We need an intro. So, so the intro that I, I kind of came up with and did here is deriving value from data. We'll, we'll test that with the market, see what people say, maybe do some surveying. But if you have any suggestions. It's very product manager of you. Thank you. So, so speaking of, we are, I know we're both product managers. And I think the first question I would ask if I'm starting to listen to a podcast is, why the heck should I listen to you? And, you know, maybe, Matt, why don't you tell me why we should uh, listen to you about any of this stuff? Oh, gosh. Listen to me? I, I don't know about that. I think there's a, a subsection of the magic community that is very nerdy in general, very technical, and I want to try to give a voice to those people. So if you ever have a little voice in, inside the back of your brain that says, the statistics of magic, magic is awesome, and I love, I love how I can analyze it, I love how I can get nerdy with this, and it's not just the fantasy element that I like, I like the data of it. I want to be your voice. Um, my background is data science, so I've been dabbling in data science for the last five years. Uh, wrote a variety of programs and analysis to just study magic, all the way from what's your what's the the best statistical path to make the pro tour, now called players tour, all the way to some magic analysis that would analyze financial markets for Magic the Magic the Gathering. So it's been a, a hobby of mine for the last uh, couple of years, and I'm hoping to share some of my thoughts with the community. Cool. So do you do you have a degree in uh, computer science then? Well, bachelor, uh, a BS in computer engineering. Computer science okay. and data science has been my, my specialty over my Got career. Got it. Cool. And, and so you're a product manager for a company. What does the company uh, kind of specialize in? Yeah. So in your real I, job? I'm a product manager for GE, um, but we actually do some really cool AI work, and I make an AI platform for healthcare. Cool. That's awesome. That's very cool. That makes a lot of sense why you were uh, living in Milwaukee for so long. It's kind of a GE healthcare hub. Move to the West Coast, the dark side of the world, San Francisco Bay Area. It's actually pretty awesome for AI. You can always go to a coffee shop and have really good conversations. I believe it. I believe it. Cool. Well, you've convinced me that you are someone worth listening to when it comes to statistics and data analysis. I, I think you're, you're well beyond 
at least myself and probably a lot of people that might listen to this just in terms of understanding different different ways to look at data and, and tools that might be available. So psyched to be working with you on this project. Likewise. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you a question, Rusty, inaugural yeah. episode. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. I know that you're part, you run a game design company. Yeah, so I got very into board gaming in college. So I play a lot of Frisbee, or I used to play a lot of Frisbee competitively, and the competitive Frisbee community loves board games. And so, you know, weekend-long tournaments, we, you know, people would bring Settlers of Catan and things like that, and got just super invested, built up a big game library, and then realized a couple years into my master's that, like, man, I can just do this myself. Like, this is this is easy. It's not easy, but... Well, at the time, I did think it was easy. It's certainly not easy to do game design. It doesn't um, seem like it at all. Yeah, so I got really into game design in college, and I did an undergrad in mechanical engineering, got a master's in electrical. I, I took a job. So I was in Pittsburgh doing school, and then I, I moved out to the Midwest for a job and was working in Milwaukee for a number of years and got an MBA there. And I I tried my hand at making a game on Kickstarter, did a Kickstarter for it, failed miserably, got a lot of very direct feedback from people on Kickstarter basically telling me... What was the name of the game? It was called My Metropolis, and you can still find it. It's out there. I think I got like a 1000 I asked for $10,000. And I think the biggest takeaway that I got from that whole experience was that artwork is so critical to people's, you know, initial draw to a game. And so I, I did a big pivot and, and found a really good artist to work with and collaborate with on my future games and then focused on, on the game design element. So I'm, I'm thrilled with the artists that I have for the games that I, I produce now. We're working on our second game. We had a successful first game, which actually is how I got introduced to magic i was doing a lot of research and development um, into card games so, so the whole story goes i i failed at the first kickstarter my mom calls me and was like hey your little brother is making a game i said throw him on the phone i want to i want to hear all about it and i'm like what's it called he's like taco ninja adventure yes I'm, I'm, I'm already sold i i don't even care what it's about so uh basically it's this comic book strip that he and his friends made where they're all different taco ninja characters and they, they fight against the opposite of tacos, which are watermelons and radishes, and made it into a game. So I, I, I knew that I needed to, to learn all about what makes a good card game and what makes a good battle game, and I had heard of Magic. This was actually Kaladesh block is, is when I started figuring out Magic for the first time and getting introduced to it. And so, you know, did a lot of research there and created a game. People who have played Magic said that it feels a lot like Two-Headed Giant. It's a team-based combat game where you roll dice. If you've heard of King of Tokyo, it'll have a similar mechanic where you're trying to roll combinations. There's a little bit of, say, instance and sorceries kind of built into there where you can play cards. Which is pretty unique. I think when it comes to other other types of games, other than unless you're a magic player, having structure around instant effect and sorcery effects in other board games, you don't see that. As a game designer, it's really made me appreciate all the different aspects and mechanics that make magic something that can be iterated and riffed on for years to come. I mean, the stack is such a unique mechanic and it's very elegant with the way that it works. It's first in, last out situation, right? In terms of how you resolve things. Compare that with uh, with Munchkin. Uh, and everyone loves yeah. the, the game Munchkin, but yeah. the, the resolution system of that is just quite chaotic, which makes which adds actually to the charm and the ambiance of that game because then you get a lot of arguing and that's part of the fun. Yeah. But Magic, yeah. complete opposite. Nice structure, rules. Mm-hmm. 
And Magic's great because I'm seeing even with these these newer draft sets that they're getting better at making the game fun for people. I mean, understanding how to make a game fun is why you play a game. And giving players the ability and the opportunities to feel clever is, I think, one of the core principles of making a fun game. So, sure. Uh, yeah, you know, that's why you maybe want to listen to me. I, I think a lot about game design, and I do care about statistics, and I play Magic. I think that game design background was the first thing that drew me to you. We met probably a year and a half ago, and mm-hmm. you were wrapping up the end of your Taco Ninja, or maybe you're just at the beginning of uh, mass marketing your Taco Ninja game. It was just before the Kickstarter, I think. It was awesome. Yeah, you brought this little this little concept. It was about halfway made, and we played, and it was I found it fascinating. So Kaladesh, uh, yeah, let's talk just a little bit, reminisce about when we first started playing Magic. I'll give you my rundown. So I started playing Magic when I was in elementary school. I was playing literally on the asphalt in the playground with uh, a new group of friends, moved to a brand new school, found the nerdiest people I could, and we just started playing Magic. And from there, I think that was around judgment time frame. Uh, I played casually until 2016 and then I went through the traditional put magic away don't play it for a few years pick it back up play it for a few years put it back and I wanted to to get back to playing magic with some friends I found some people at work and I said hey you guys want to try this again we all got into it and we all had that competitive gene so we were trying to one-up each other over and over and over then we started going to GPs and that's how I, I wound up into the the grinder lifestyle so I've been trying to, to make that Pro Tour for the last, probably since 2018 now, last two years. What's the closest that you've gotten? Oh gosh, um, went to an RPTQ with a bunch of buddies, uh, my, my uh, magic team back home in the Midwest, the Fanny Pack, a year and a half ago. We had some close calls there. I top eighted two, uh, two MTGO super qualifiers a month ago. And those are probably my closest calls, so. Congratulations. Appreciate it. You're gonna get there. I mean, it's it's just a matter of getting enough opportunities to succeed. It's a game of randomness as well as skill, right? So you'll get there. I'm, I know you will. Yeah, thank you. Kaladesh, yeah. though. So that's 2015 time frame, 2016? Uh, I think it was 2016, the end of 2016. And yeah, I my roommate at the time, who I think is on the fanny pack now, actually, Danny Kress, He's a pretty talented player, very thoughtful guy. We've learned a lot over the years from from playing with him. But we lived together, and we were doing some Grand Prix. I, I went to Grand Prix Omaha whenever it was Ulamog and uh, Etherworks Marvel, and we. I'm sorry. And uh, we we brought a brew that Danny had come up with. It was white blue approach, and just after Marvel got banned, that became a deck. So so he was kind of ahead of the curve, and. You know, we I don't think either one of us really appreciated just understanding meta and matchups and things like that I, to, to the degree that we do now, and we probably would have never you know, done that. You know what you would have benefited from? This, pa- this podcast, this episode today. If you would have listened to this podcast way back when, I yep. think you would have came with the, the perfect deck for Omaha, yes. GP Omaha. Yes, I'm so excited. This is such a cool concept. It's figuring out how to determine day one and day two meta. And this is something that you came up with. And I, I'm so excited for you to walk us through everything about this. So so let's dive into it. Sure. So one of the motivations for kind of doing better at 
magic was you need to let data tell you where you should go, where you should go from a deck selection perspective, where you should go from a sideboard tuning perspective, and let it guide your decisions. And in 2018, when I was starting the grinder, competitive grinder lifestyle, the, my main go-to was MTG Goldfish or MTG Top 8. But like most of you, I would want to figure out what's the most popular deck, and then I would tune to maybe the top three most popular decks. So I'd go to these websites and I'd tune my deck and I'd always be wrong. Well, actually how the pattern emerged was every GP I'd go to, I'd either make day two or get really close to making, making day two. And then when I hit day two competition, it felt like I was playing in a completely different tournament. I didn't have the luxury of changing my deck around. And however I tuned my deck, just folded, absolutely folded. Part of it was, you know, the competition in day two of these tournaments was really fantastic, but also my deck just wasn't positioned, it wasn't built to handle these things. So I started thinking, how can we go about this? How can we improve upon the classic meta percentage statistic that we all use, we all love, and make it a realistic tool for us if you're competitive or if you're going to these bigger tournaments? So I first started analyzing the pitfalls and what are the pitfalls for these MTG Goldfish or MTG Top 8 percentages. And the pitfalls are really clear. Basically, what these sites do is they just crowdsource a bunch of open data from wizards, from these other sites, and they give you a really good representation of the average play experience that you're gonna have at any given tournament. And it averages your play experience by summing up a, a mixture of competitive events all the way from really low level competitive events like regular leagues at MTGO, all the way to really high level competitive events, world championships for Magic the Gathering. And whenever you go and play one of these uh, events, you're typically not playing at a pro tour. So why are you including these experiences in the average percent? You shouldn't. You should tune your average meta percentage to your average experience. So this mushy group of data was skewing what you should expect. So it sounds like the limitation here was just that there was a lot of data and it was just looking at a lot of different things if you were to just take a snapshot of what was on MTG Top 8 and MTG Goldfish. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing that these, these sites do is they, they all use guessing. So a really important thing to think about is Magic is a living, breathing game that's changing every single week, especially in the beginning of a, a set change or a, met, a big meta change. Every day, there could be a different average mixture of decks that you're going to experience. So these sites, they handle that by averaging over time windows. So if you look at MTG Top 8, you get a little bit of control over the time window that you get to pick. Um, you could say, I want to average my decks over the last two months or the last two weeks or year to date. But what you'll find out in our analysis further down in the podcast, that's not sufficient if you really want to go to these big events like a Grand Prix or do a super qualifier on MTGO. You have to have more control over these time windows to give you a competitive meta percentage that matches your play experience that you're going to have. So when you say you need more control over the time window, you're saying that the last two weeks isn't enough, or, or is it more than that? What I found in my analysis over the last few months was last two weeks is still too coarse grain for at least online metas. With the rate that MTGO moves, we're moving so quickly and we're in a pandemic that people are playing tons. Last two weeks is actually feels like a last two month time frame in the paper magic world. Yeah. 
Okay, so have you had a chance to, to utilize this algorithm that you've built? And well, first, we should probably talk about what the algorithm actually is and, and, and the analysis. So let's, um, let's go to a really simple view of the algorithm. Okay. So first, every algorithm needs to be consistently tuned. So for the listeners of this podcast, think of this as a starting point. Use this as a starting point and then tweak the heuristic to your liking, to wherever you're playing magic. Don't treat it like a hard and fast rule. The first play experience that we're going to try to emulate is GPs. GPs are really, really tricky. You have two different competitive metas that you want to track at a GP. What is the day one meta and what is the day two meta? So what I do to calculate that is I like going to MTG top eight and then I will do a pruning of all their matches and kind of clean the classification of all the matches, make my own classification of matches. And once I have that, my day one meta is 50% of all REL level on up competitive events, 50% of their last two months of those regular REL events, plus 50% of the last two months of competitive REL events. So, so let's take a step back for a second. You said that you're doing pruning of the data. Maybe go into a little bit more detail about what that might entail. Yeah, so I'm definitely going to go into the little detail. One thing that we'll do is we'll also post a little helper video to actually show you the Google Doc that we use to, to create this. When you're approaching a matchup, specifically with a deck in mind, say I'm playing Orzhov, Doom Pact, and Pioneer, there's going to be little nuances in how MTG Goldfish classifies decks that I actually care about. So for example, Burn. We're taking Burn, and maybe in the beginning of Ikoria, Burn was all mashed together into a classification of deck called Boros Aggro. But my deck would play against a Boros Aggro deck really, really differently if it was Lurus Boros Burn versus Boros Heroic, like Featherless Feather. So this pruning's happening with respect to your particular deck, and, and you're just doing that because those two have enough of a, a, a meaningful difference to you to, to justify having them segmented out for, for Burn in particular yeah because so if if you would play differently between those nuances of decks then you should probably split them up that makes complete sense yeah okay cool the nice thing about that is going through and doing this this manual work of reclassifying decks just builds up your own internal understanding um, you start building up a repertoire or, or a set of expertise so the prerequisite here is that you've played enough of your own deck to be able to to know and articulate that you know there are two different brands of burn, let's say for Doom Pack, and that they're going to affect your deck differently. And, and, and you have to do that work up front to be able to actually have this analysis mean something for you. Absolutely. Even if you're brand new to a deck and you don't even understand the nuances, doing this manual classification will get you to start thinking about what the possible nuances could be, and it'll make you a better Magic player. Okay, so we've covered day one meta, day two meta. Day two meta. So this is where the grinders come in. In day two, you're going to have a higher concentration of professional magic players, and you're going to have a higher concentration of competitive grinders that are willing to buy a deck and be a lot more fluid with buying or acquiring paper copies of magic decks. That means that this two-month time window is too long of a time window because the day two participants are reacting faster than the two-month time window. So the algorithm changes a little bit. It changes on how you filter by competition level. No longer are you even allowing REL level events to influence your meta calculation. You're doing only competitive REL events on up, so two star plus on MTG Top 8's site. And then you're doing a mixture of the last two weeks of events and the last two months of events. So I like to do 50% of the last two months of competitive events plus 50% of the last two weeks of competitive uh, events. And doing an, a weighted average of that, 
will give you a really good heuristic of what your day two competition would look like at a GP. Got it. That also makes a lot of sense. How did you arrive at all these numbers? Was there a testing approach that you, you took to, to get here? So uh, you're going to laugh. It's Right now, it's still a little gut feel. It's um, based upon win rates. So before I started doing this meta tuning, what was my win rate? After I started doing meta tuning, what's my win rate? My win rate's been getting better. I can give you some examples further in the, in the podcast. Now, I would like to back that up with more than just a gut feel. I would like to back that up with statistics, actually calculate what the meta was, and then do a comparison. That, that data is hard to find, though. It's really, really tricky. There's like one site that does it, Mox Insights, which is slowing down in some of their output due to the pandemic. Well, Mox Insights is uh, primarily focused on paper, correct? Yep, exactly. Interesting. Okay. So we haven't been able to truly test out and, and see if it's accurate. Is that what I'm hearing? I think that that's some good follow-up analysis to do is put a little you know, objective rigor behind how we're doing this calculation. And I would love to hear our first-time listeners' uh, opinions on this. And if they want to do some testing their, themselves, feel free to share it with folks. I'll give you one kind of subjective, objective test of how I did this meta calculation. It deals with a different competitive meta percentage calculation I did. I, I did a competitive meta percentage calculation for premier MTGO events. The premier MTGO events, they move a ton faster. So I had to change the heuristic. But when I started applying competitive meta percentages versus average meta percentages, I was able to move faster than my opponents in picking the right deck. So I'll give you an example. I started playing Pioneer at the end of February in March and started getting competitive again. In the beginning, I was playing blue-white control. I was doing terrible just because I really, really like blue-white control. And I wasn't looking at data. I was just going by gut feel and changing my sideboard, changing my main board. With all my super qualifier and challenger events, I had a 39% win rate. It was pretty bad. 14 and 22. That's hard, man. That's hard. I, I, did, you, did you lose motivation during that time? Was there emotional struggles or were you just kind of doggedly keeping after it? I was doggedly keeping after it. I, I just really liked blue-white control and I, I, I stuck on it way too long. I, I was also in the fallacy of doing decent and regular leagues, like getting some 5-0s here or there and thinking, oh, it's just variance when I'm going to these competitive events. That's why I'm doing so bad. No, it was a bad deck. It, I shouldn't have been playing it. So, so based on your memory, what was the main difference from what you were seeing in the leagues versus what you were seeing at the tournaments? Oh yeah, it was a completely different mixture of decks. You would get these homebrews in REL events, just like really off the wall deck lists. Maybe you'd get goblins, or maybe you'd get a Grixis control pile, which mm. no one should be playing in competitive events, but you'd be beating those and you'd be tricking yourself to say blue-white control is really good. Or you'd get a lot of people that just bring nothing but aggro because aggro is a simple deck and anyone can play aggro and people like playing aggro. So maybe you're artificially skewing toward playing against a lot of aggro decks. You know, I think also control is such a unique animal and this is my philosophy on it and I'm, I'd love to hear if you agree or disagree, but if it's an okay deck, it means that it generally has the tools to compete against the lion's share of the meta and that's it. But if it's a good deck, it has a lot of tools that are generally good against a lot of stuff, like what be it spot removal, cheaper sweepers. And I think that whenever a control deck is well positioned is if it has a lot of strong tools or if the meta is just so much of one particular kind of thing that you know you can beat. Would you agree? I agree with both points and particularly control decks being good against established metas. If there's a, a, a concentration of one to two types of decks 
or a concentration of an archetype. Control is there to kick ass. It's kind of the fun police in the sense that it actually encourages fun because it makes healthy metas. But I, I would say there's definitely metas where just really, really simple linear decks can, can be the best deck to play. If there's a deck that lacks all inter interaction, but it's just so freaking fast or so quick to combo kill that it doesn't care, it, th that can be the best deck to play. That's why I play Dredge. Yeah, KCI is a great example. Dredge is a great example mm -hmm. uh, because mm -hmm. they don't really, really need to care. But sometimes if the opposing deck's hate isn't good enough, that could be actually the optimal deck to pick. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not a control player. Would you consider yourself a control player? Uh, a novice. Yeah, no, I like it. I like playing it. Uh, I made an RPTQ with it and did okay at RPTQ, but I still have a lot to learn. I, I think the best record I ever had with a, um, a control deck was blue-red energy control with Dynavolt Tower and Chandra from Kaladesh. I, I did well at, I think I top-aided some local game store uh, in Milwaukee, uh, Board Game Barrister. Shout out to BGB. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not a control player for sure. What's I, your type? I, I, what do you like to play? Dredge, we heard that. You're a degenerate, by the way. Thank you. Yes, I know. I... <sighs> I know that I get mentally fatigued at tournaments, and I, I'm, I'm trying to set myself up for success by having to, to make the fewest decisions. <laughs> I like that. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm honest with myself. I know that I'm, I'm not necessarily the best player. Seven-round tournament. There's nothing wrong yeah, with that yeah. at all. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I like to play a lot of dredge. I actually just foiled out a bit more of my dredge deck recently. Yeah, what was so your latest foil? Well, I have a strategy for, for foiling it out, and, and I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble. I have the backup cards if anyone tries to call me out on something being fishy, but anything that I can use from the graveyard is foiled. So like the oxes, the conflagrates, ancient grudge, and the reason is because I have had one or two situations arise where the last tournament I played in with Dredge, I had a win. It was the last round before cut to top eight, and I had him. I had lethal with a conflagrate. It was just right next to my deck and like a long line of cards. And I had five cards in hand. He had five life, and I was, I was, uh, Rusty, no. I'm still living it. And this was like, I think four months ago. This was early March, just before COVID. It's, it still hurts. So, that's why that's why I foiled them out just just to help you like deal it. with the mental. I like it. you. You Thanks. live, you learn, and and you learned foil yeah. foiled yeah. out so you can look at it like a possum does and like the shiny things and never forget the shiny things. Yeah, exactly. Like I get mentally fatigued. I just I know that I do. So this is this is my 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 solve among other things like playing quick decks and so I have that. I have burn and burn's actually a hard deck to play. It's it's harder than dredge. Okay, okay. Every burn player I know says that. I, okay, granted, I'm not a burn player, so everyone roasts me when you hear this. Is it really that hard? Is it, it really? Is. Yeah, you have a lot of decisions to make. I mean, in terms of what you remove, where you point your spells. Do I bolt them with this card? Do I bolt? No, I'm just kidding. You're you're not wrong. <laughs> it's it's just a question of where you point it, right? And, and what you represent and how to sequence. I so, I hear you. I hear you. I, actually, some of my favorite decks of all time have been aggro decks. They haven't been burn but they've been mm -hmm. hardcore linear, just, you know, throw creatures at people's face. And there's a difference between someone playing it optimally, and there's a difference between someone just playing it. Absolutely. And then I'm trying to remember, oh, I have Jund as well that I picked up, and that was before I realized that I don't like making decisions. <laughs> and that has a lot of decisions. I, I am 
Uh, I'll, I'll self-describe myself as the worst mid-range player that has ever walked this earth. For some yep. reason, mid-range does not click, and whenever there's a choice, whenever there's two or three choices, I pick the least optimal every single time in that deck. Well, if you know that, then you just choose always, to always you do the thing that. You and then you, right, you right. flip it around. If you're a, a perfect uh, failure detector, you are. You could also be a perfect detector at the same time. Exactly. Anywho, okay. So speaking of speaking of aggro, to kind of finish the example of uh, super qualifiers and how you can apply competitive meta back to blue white control. Thirty nine percent win rate was terrible. Stuck on it too long. And then I started using data and this method to say. How can I better track the meta? Mono green came around. Mono green walkers. I'm not sure if you heard of it. It was a menace in March to April time frame. I got two top yeah, eights out of that. Wow. Yep. Way to go. Thank you. Um, tuned it a smidge. Uh, got to 65% win rate. Most of the tuning was sideboard related. So I, I figured a lot of the decks, a lot of the mono green decks were not playing any sideboard flexibility. They were just doing a wishboard. And I said, screw that. Let's put a little bit of sideboarding into it put three spots in, so nothing big. But then I, I spotted some of the most popular decks that were gonna be showing up at competitive metas and just started tuning. So whenever a new match, a new super qualifier, I'd say, what would be the number one deck that I have trouble with? And then I would just throw three three flex spots at them. And uh, it worked out pretty well. Nice, so what were some of the flex spots that you used? Yeah, there's two different sets. So in the beginning of the days, there was Bant Spirits was a menace because Bant Spirits could beat Inverter pretty handily and it could beat Breach pretty handily. So I flexed everything toward Spirits and I think I ended up getting an 80% win rate against the deck through Heaven and Earth. Okay, let me describe this card for you. It is a one-sided wrath against everything that flies in green. It's beautiful. Instant speed. So. One green X, deal X to all flyers, instant speed. That's good. And then just a bunch of walking blisters. Uh, and then it, it turned it into a really unfavorable matchup to a very favorable matchup. So what were some of the slots that you cut and why? I just cut around the board. Um, so a little bit of mana ramp, uh, one Jade Light Ranger, and maybe one with Wolf Willow. So actually two mana ramps were gone and mm -hmm. one Jade Light for my flex spots. And it seemed really, really decent. Wait, so there was a ramp in the sideboard? Oh, uh, what did I cut from the sideboard? So I did statistics, and I found out how often I used cards in the wishboard, and then I also mm -hmm. calculated a, a win correlation. So when I played those cards, did I still win? I found mm -hmm. that Emrakul, the Promised Aeon's Thorn, the Promised N, there we go. Mm -hmm. That was two different, that was two cards kind of mashed together there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would be a hell of a card. Oh my god. CMC? What would the CMC? That'd 1D. No. No. 27. Uh, yeah, so I cut that one because literally that was only there for control. And remember, control was poopy, and no one played control in the competitive leagues except me. So I cut that, and I cut a few other small things. That makes sense. So you talked a little bit about some of the analysis that you were doing to see your, your win rate. I guess, how were you calculating those, those percentages? Yeah, it was a mixture of me manually doing it. So just going through MTGO. I had a system where I tried to learn from every win or loss. So I, I do one really quick gander at a replay and try to jot down one thought of what went well or what didn't go well in a match. It was just a, a tool to get like lessons to stick in my brain, where if you yeah. write something down, you, you actually just remember it. But if you don't write it down, you're like a goldfish. Your brain just washes over it.
I, I do the same thing actually for draft. Uh, I, I picked this up recently as I've been drafting more on Arena. I screenshot whatever I, I draft deck I have, and then as I'm playing matches, I, I throw it up in Excel, uh, the, the big picture, and then I type up what my opponent's playing, and then just general kind of stuff that happens at a high level. And, and I have the Arena replay tool and all that other stuff that, that I could go in and grab more data from if I really wanted to. But just the general feel of like, was I too slow? What did they play that really kind of screwed me? What were the most impactful cards in a given matchup? That way, I am being intentional and thinking about how to improve with whatever draft deck I have, you know, in the future. And then if I'm drafting again on Arena and I, I find myself moving into a color pair, I can quickly pull up the notes to see what things were impactful and why. And it, it just helps me to you know, retain those lessons learned. So to totally, totally agree with you. I like one of the words that you used, intentional. And I think that's something that competitive Magic players could do more often, is just be disciplined with, don't use your gut for every single decision, even though you do have to use your gut when you're playing matches because time's a, time's a factor. But mm -hmm. especially outside of matches, use your head to make decisions versus just a gut. And you might very well arrive at the same exact decision that you're going to, but then you'll know why. And that, that yeah. why sticks in. I, I think that there's a fine line to walk there. And I've heard pros talk about this. I think LSV has talked about this a lot. We'll probably listen to a lot of the same podcasts, but as most of the Magic community, like limited resources and arena deck lists and... Uh, one of my favorite new ones is Faithless Brewing. Love those guys. They're fantastic. But LSV's talked about in the past how you do want to develop these mental shortcuts while playing Magic so that you don't have to think so much because there is an energy expenditure. And maybe I'm a little bit more sensitive to it because I, I know that I get mental fatigue while I'm playing. You talk about being intentional and thinking about each play. And that's easy to, to say and do for somebody maybe more like yourself that enjoys thinking about all those things. And I think it's also interesting too. Different people play Magic for different reasons. A lot of people play because they love the puzzle and they love thinking about all this stuff and these decisions that you're talking about being intentional about throughout the course of a game, it's second nature for them, right? It's it's why they play, but not so for everybody. I play because I like the competition. I like to win when I win and I like to hang out with my friends and I, I think that there is a fine line to walk with the heuristics. Every individual player is going to have a different line. What do you, how do yeah. they go about exploring that? I think I look at it within the context of why I play when I play. At this point in my life, I'm married, I've got a pet, I've got a job, I've got my board game business, I've got a lot of other things, so my time's valuable. And I, I try to do the things that, that have the most, you know, emotional equity for me, regardless of whatever it is. So, you know, why am I doing this podcast? It's because I like talking about this kind of stuff. It's fun for me. And so it's okay. So when is magic actually fun for me? It's whenever I win and whenever I spend time with my friends. And so I don't go out to tournaments. I don't do the competitive grinding scene anymore. I used to, and I got pretty burnt out and emotionally upset about it because it wasn't the right fit for me and I had to learn it's a that tough road. But it is a tough and exhausting road for sure it's hard and and the juice just isn't the, worth the squeeze for me personally and when it comes to traveling and paying and, and going to these tournaments I make sure that I have been practicing so I usually will dedicate at least two or three weeks in advance like DK Danny will call me up and say hey well, I want to go to this tournament I say great I'm in I'm, my wife says I'm free so we're going to do it I will go with him online we'll, we'll typically kind of scope out the right deck that we want to play we will practice 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 and discuss what makes sense and then i i make sure that i go having built up all of the kind of shortcuts 
you know, over those two or three weeks of, of training so that I, I go into it and I, I know that I'm not going to become overly exhausted with all these decision points by playing something that I'm not necessarily familiar with. So I, I'm intentional about what I choose to do and the approach that I take to guarantee that I have the best possible outcome. And I've also learned to be patient with myself and just enjoy the experience and, and be okay with scrubbing out in the first three matches. And that's just part of it. I, those are some really beautiful sentiments in the sense that I think in the beginning of the conversation where you said everyone plays magic for a different reason, I totally agree with that. And I think that's what makes magic so great. We have a million formats. Some people like to cube. Some people like to play commander. Some people love to play pro tours or want to get to the world championship. And every single person has a different itch to scratch that magic can scratch. For me, when it comes to like burning out in the competitive scene, I go back to some of the things that I just enjoy doing in magic, which is just dicking around with friends and, and having a good time face to face playing magic, picking up any format and hopefully picking up a deck that I have no idea how to play and just having fun and laughing. That's good. I personally can't do that. I need to win <laughs> to, to enjoy it. So I, and I've learned that about myself. I'm, I'm thrilled that you get to, you get to do that. That's For sure. Awesome. Oh, so okay. we were talking about Winray a little bit, Rusty, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the sources of, of where you can get this information from. The same data that informs Winray will probably inform your competitive meta percentages as well. So you have the, your tried and true, which is MTG top eight, MTG goldfish, but where can you crowdsource data with buddies or with groups of people so you can figure out win rates and where high densities of win rates are and low densities of win rates are? I found some gems that I wanted to, to let you guys know about. So you have tried and true Mox Insights. So they're a group that goes to every GP and they'll give surveys out at the end of GPs to all the participants. And they'll try to get as much information about who played what, but also what won, and then give out these beautiful dashboards and insights and statistics at the end of it. Now, they're not really going live today because they specialize in paper magic and pandemic, but keep an eye out once paper magic starts picking back up. Mox Insights is a beautiful place to go and get that that type of information. So one thing I wanted to ask you about Mox Insights is how do we know that this data source is reliable? I mean, it's self-reporting, and we know that self-reporting is tricky. It, there's, there's, it can be problematic. Or it's skewed. Possibly the people that did better will self-report more than the people mm -hmm. that didn't. You know, it's a really good question. I think what you do when you're using data as a guide to magic is you, you take everything with a grain of salt. And when you look at a source of information, you say, what could be these biases? And do I accept those biases? So it's really up to to the reader but yeah there is a little bit of skew that probably happens in mox insights we could chat with them further down the line in these podcast series and, and actually mm -hmm. talk to them about that i bet you they have some mechanisms to overcome it i just don't know what they are i hope they're willing to talk to us but yes that'd be an awesome conversation i would love to to pick and poke and and see see what they think about all this i, I think the other side of this too you, you said you, you need to take everything with a grain of salt i think you also look at it within the context of all the other data that you can pull from like MTG top eight and goldfish. Like if it doesn't jive, then you know, to, to start probing a little deeper, but if everything kind of makes sense and, and tracks and uh, is similar, then you say, okay, then maybe this is okay. Yes. All right, I got one more for you, Rusty. Ready for this? Now this yep. is a little gem. Not a lot of people know about this one. It's a secret, MTG salvation. So everyone okay. knows MTG salvation, yeah? But yeah. if you are an aficionado of a deck and you're, you just love a deck to a huge degree, you're always going to be able to find a community of those deck players. Uh, so for me, that was Amulet Titan back in the day. And I loved Amulet Titan, did a ton of math and statistics on it, and I was inspired by another MTG Salvation group, the Lantern Control Group, oh aka, gosh, oh I know, no one likes that deck, no one. They're bastards. 
I've I've told you this story before, but I'm going to tell you again so that everyone can enjoy it. I, I go to Board Game Barrister, and I said, oh, I, I'm not sure that I want Magic. I know that it's really popular, but I'm afraid that I'm going to get into it. And the guy's just like, here's a free deck. Oh, man. Don't, don't even worry about it. He's here's, like your drug dealer. Here's a free deck. Here's... First hit's free. First one was free. Like, I was like, fine. And, and, and my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, she got one too, and we brought him home the little 40-card like starter decks or whatever, and we played and got super into it. But I took those cards and got another couple packs and put a green-white pile together, and then... I wanted to go back to Board Game Barrister for like a Friday Night Magic, and it was standard legal cards that I had. And I think maybe even one or two of them weren't even standard legal because they came from this random starter deck. That so you're saying that you were and super competitive. You were ready to go at any tournament. Oh, I was so ready. Going to I was ready to win, you know. <laughs> and I was only going to have fun if I was going to win. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I signed up for the wrong event. I signed up for Modern. Um <laughs> No, and I, I didn't even know. Like, I, they were just like, are you here for modern or standard? I'm like, I guess modern, because standard sounds like it's older, and modern sounds like it's newer, and I have the newer card, so I'm going to sign up for it modern. It does. Oh, my gosh. You're right. And, yeah, for a new player, like, I didn't know. And so I sat down at a table, and across from me, the guy, I I can't remember what his turn one play, but there was Lantern of Insight comes out, and, you know, Codex Shredder, and I'm just like, why are all these cards gray? And they're all foiled, too. This is... Well, this what's happening? Dumb. Like, I, that card just looks like, at my... Free damage. That card what just that? mills me one? Oh, Yeah, I'm like, oh, oh, big deal, big deal. And and I, I start swinging in for damage, and then before I know it, like, I can't play Magic anymore, and the guy sitting next to me is like, what are you playing? <laughs> I'm like... I got some cards. I put a deck together. I don't know what I'm... What do you mean, what am I playing? It's magic. And, like, he was asking me the deck I was playing, and I... Yeah, so it was a very rude introduction to Magic I'm sorry. Competitive. I cannot it's, believe you kept playing Magic after that. That's amazing. I was just... Well, honestly, I was so curious. I was like, can you please tell me what is going on here? And That might what? be like, why you actually play Magic now, because it was so... Such a curiosity. I... Honestly, I I am very curious, and I, I love diving into games and understanding what makes them tick and what makes them fun and all the mechanics, and that is entirely why I got into Magic. It's because there was so much to learn. It was very attractive to me. I, yeah. So speaking I, of those, A, I'm sorry that you had to be introduced that way. B, I'm very happy you were introduced to Magic that way because it seems like you got your, your, your noggin ticking. The rude awakening that they gave Rusty at his very first Magic tournament, those scummy Lantern of Control players, they actually did contribute to the magic competitive scene a little bit. Yeah, thank you, sir. I'm sure I could find it. There's probably there's one guy or two guys in Milwaukee that, that play Lantern Control, and I know <laughs> I think Blake Burgess is one of them. And like, and why other... does every Lantern of Control player always have a foil deck? I don't That's know. a question. I don't know. That's a serious yeah. question. You know, I, I've talked to some serious Lantern Control players. I've had a, a good chat because I was gonna get into it a, until I realized how many decision points there were, and I said nah. <laughs> but the whole philosophy of the deck is that it's it's trying to operate on near-perfect information for decision-making. And it's it's a cool concept. Like in deck design and game design, that is their, their advantage. They're trying to, to use information to make the most effective decision to win. And any player is trying to do that, but they have all the tools once they get them out on the board, and then it's just a matter of picking the right tool to use. And the right tool to use is manipulate your deck so you draw a land every single freaking turn. 
yes, it's wildly frustrating. Uh, yeah, I always I always get heartburn every time I sit down next to a control player. All right, going back, let's talk about some of the good that these uh, these scummy lantern Please. players. Okay, and I'm sorry if you're a lantern player. I actually do like the deck. I'm like Rusty. I find it interesting. I just can't play it, and I don't like playing against it. It's just like more power to you. More power. And one of the so one of the things that these ingenious bastards did. Sorry, I probably shouldn't swear on an inaugural episode, but I did. It's okay. Um, MTG Salvation, they formed groups to crowdsource data. So they are one of these aficionados that loved letting data tell a story. And they actually made a giant Google Doc that they were to record all these matches or submit a bunch of YouTube videos of them playing matches so people could then watch those videos, write down notes of all the plays that they made throughout the game, and they tuned the crap out of the deck. I forgot how many matches that they, they crowdsourced. I want to say it, it almost hit five digits. It was definitely in the four digits of matches, but almost wow. in the five digits of matches. And they did these crazy win correlation statistics in these Google Docs. They tried a million different flavors and said, does this work, does this not work? When I play this, does that correlate into me having a win? And that was right before the Pro Tour, maybe 2018 timeframe. Lantern Control won that year. And I actually attribute it to the MTG Salvation Groups doing really complicated win rate analysis and statistics on tuning of a deck. Do you know of any Lantern Control streamers? Ooh, I don't know of any off the top of my head. I know of a bunch of local guys that, that play all the foil decks. I just can't imagine that'd be fun to watch. <laughs> I know. Like, like, I'm like, I can't see that being like self-sustaining, you know? It's only fun for other Lantern players. That's such a small group. I don't... If, if you know of a Lantern There are dozens, stream, sir. There are dozens. <laughs> there are dozens of us. Yeah, if anybody knows of a Lantern Control streamer, please let me know. I, I just want to sit down and see what their stream's like. Yeah, just curious. Just morbidly curious more than anything else. Absolutely. So my, uh, my request to you guys listening to the podcast is if you're an aficionado of the deck and you feel like you want to do a little crowdswell movement, try MTG Salvation. Reach out to your buds on those forums. And I bet you can get some crowdsourcing of data that way. So as a teaser, we are also trying to crowdsource data um, yep. to analyze decks. And in the future episodes, we kind of have this thought for a bread and butter episode of testing a deck using statistics to first analyze and then going in to test it and then having a discussion afterwards. So I just wanted to throw the teaser in there. We are thinking about doing this for decks, our statistical analysis. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the first groups that we're going to leverage is uh, my team coming out of the Midwest, the fanny pack competitive mm -hmm. magic team but we're you also open that, right you, you started that that team correct it's actually just kind of a, a very organic movement it was a bunch of buds that all went to an rptq together we got an, an airbnb to save some money and we knew each other loosely and then we just had a, a really good time yeah it was a, a group of five of us five of us that started it we are going to be crowdsourcing data to try to up our game but we're also open to other folks crowdsourcing data too so Get a hold of us. Cool. We'd love to, to mix all our data together and see what we could do. In terms of the topic for this episode, because we're coming up on an hour here, is there anything else for us to cover at a high level, kind of philosophically, about determining day one, day two meta? Yeah, I think so. So I think in the last 10 minutes, I would say, what do you do with it? You can do all this work and come up with a really good representation of what your play experience is going to be by adjusting time windows or competitive event levels. But then how do you act how do you take action upon that information? And there's there's two choices. You could pick a deck that is really good in that meta, or you could tune a deck to that meta. And it depends on a lot of factors, but I think what we'll do in a follow-up video is also show you a tuning 
of a deck where you can do sideboard effectiveness and try to get, come up with those 15 slots in a sideboard, what would be the optimal 15 slots for a given meta? I love it. So do you think that it's it's more likely that understanding a metagame will inform your deck selection, be, be more impactful for your deck selection, or be more impactful for your, your sideboard uh, selection? If you're playing standard, where there's maybe four real decks that you can play, maybe 10 total, um, you probably know what deck you're going to play. You're probably going to play the best deck. So then tuning your sideboard becomes the most important thing that you can do. Versus if you're playing modern or legacy, ones that have a lot more wide open, especially modern, there might be 10 decks that could take down a tournament at, at any given time. You could try to find where the winds have shifted and if dredge is a good call. So maybe that's a deck selection thing that you could do. But I think it's really up to the format and more wide open formats, I'd say deck selection probably favors you and more narrow formats, I would say deck tuning favors you. At the time of this recording on June 7th, which way does Pioneer swing at the moment? Is it more towards standard where you play the best deck or is it more towards modern and legacy in your opinion? Oh, it's, it's definitely more toward modern and legacy. Pioneer's weird in the sense that in the seven months of existence, it's never had a stable meta. Well, the last four months, Inverter's always been good. Um, but for the most part, things have been so wild that uh, you're probably best to just pick a deck and get really have really good expertise with it. I don't know. What do you What do you think? I've not played a single game of Pioneer, not one. Ah, uh, that's gotta change, my friend. You should try it's that. It's to. a blast. It's going to. I'm I'm gonna pick up Doom Pack and some other ones. Whatever we decide the first uh, statistical analysis, so we're gonna do whatever deck that is. I, I'm I assume it's gonna be Pioneer, right? Yeah, we can definitely do it in Pioneer. Uh, maybe modern, though. I, I think modern might be picking up in popularity. Maybe we could explore that a bit. I'm good for either. I don't think we're going to focus so much on standard in this podcast, but maybe there's a couple standard decks that we'll we'll talk about. I don't know. We'll see. So we'll, we'll talk about it more on the actual video, whatever we do the tuning about sideboard slots and, and what makes sense based on analysis. Are there any other things that we have to cover for this? I'll give you one other parting wisdom. And it is just a general wisdom when it comes to doing your competitive meta percentage calculation for paper tournaments versus Magic Online tournaments. In this episode, we went through GPs, which are paper, which means that longer time windows are your friend because people acquire decks slower in paper. Mm. When you adjust this to online, in a link, we'll show you some statistics of how to do that. Um, time windows just get a lot shorter. So just keep that in mind if you're if you're playing a ton of arena or a ton of online, um, don't take these GP competitive meta percentages and just apply it right there. You're gonna have poor results. Shrink all the time windows up and you'll have much better results. All right, Matt. Well, this has been a blast. I've had a really good time. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we. I, I'm excited for where this podcast goes, doing other really broad but deep dives into statistics in specific formats with specific decks, trying out different tools. Also, I would love for this to be a platform to go pick the brains of some of the, the best in the biz. So Frank Karsten and a few other folks that are regularly making statistical content or the folks over at Mox Insights. I see this as a really good platform to just have open discussions with those types of folks as well. Absolutely. And we've got a Discord channel that you can get access to by checking out uh, our, our Patreon and becoming a, a patron there. Uh, there will be links for all of that in the show notes. Please check out our, our Patreon. We, we've got big plans for this. We, we're excited to talk to people and keep developing. Nerds at heart. Nerds at heart. Nerds at heart. Nerds at heart. Maybe that's our tagline. Nerds at heart. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thanks for, for being on the show. And our frequency will be about every two weeks. So uh, we'll see you in about two weeks.